The idea of white supremacy, as you see in this book, is it's a lie perpetuated upon a lot of people. And it's specifically perpetuated upon white people because white supremacy doesn't care about you either. They've given you this lie, this lie that you're different, this lie that you're special and that you're better. Genetically, psychologically, all these things, we have no difference between us, we're humans. But this lie of white supremacy is that whiteness is a thing. The richest people don't actually care about your whiteness. Welcome to the Book Society podcast. My guest today is Dialect. He is a producer, a writer, a hip hop artist, a rapper, the founder and host of the Museum of Dead Words, which you should definitely look up and is one of the coolest things that I know of. I was slightly brokenhearted because I was working on one of the biggest classical pieces that I've ever written when Dialect asked me to contribute a piece to the Museum of Dead Words and I couldn't make the two things work because the deadlines were the same and I still regret it, frankly. Dialect is also the co-host of Brunch and Budget, which is a podcast that he hosts with his wonderful wife about financial literacy and is the director of pedagogy at Pockets Change, which is, I'll let you explain what that is, but it has also to do with financial literacy. So Dialect is a hip hop artist, rapper, producer, and also a genius with money and is an all around great guy who I've known for many, many years who picked hands down my least favorite book that we've read on this podcast (laughs) (laughs) just definitely the worst one my fingernails are messed up from reading this book and like biting my fingernails it's like one of these books that you read like this like you don't want to see it anyway it's called hitler's american model by james q whitman and So I thought when you picked it that it was going to be fiction and that it was going to be about like Nazi cells in America, sort of like boys from Brazil style. But what it really is, is essentially uh, 170 pages of an explanation of how the Nazis based their race law on United States race law and transcriptions of meetings between Nazi lawyers who were trying to figure out how to institutionalized the racism of the Third Reich that has become so famous. And one of their main inspirations was U.S. race law. And the only reason that they looked elsewhere for inspiration, it seems, is because they thought that the U.S. laws were a little too harsh. The Nazis thought the U.S. race laws were too harsh. Well, there's this whole thing about it where this idea that exterminating people is less inhumane than taking away their culture and treating them as pets. It's wild. By the way, Lucas, for the museum, we can always get up and do stuff. It's a living, breathing museum, so I'll bother you about it. We'll get some music things going on there. It'll be fun. I would love to. You're so great. Everyone kiss each other's behind on here because we're talking about such heavy and sad stuff. It sucks to know this, that like, you know, people talk about like cancel culture a lot, right? But we have a history of canceling entire cultures. I feel like I should make a song about that. When I was working on the museum, not to be plugging the thing that I was doing, but it was a big research project, right? And I was looking up the origins of racism. And one of the earliest uses of the word, it's before it even became coined as the term, because it didn't get coined until, funny enough, when they were talking about what the Nazis were doing to the Jews. But before it was even really coined, it was done in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which weirdly enough, if you know my first place, Square Peg Syndrome, about the race riots in my high school, that was in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, a very racist town where the Klan used to march. And this is the reason why it's so interesting in this town, because the dude who coined the word or first started using the word racism was saying that killing Native Americans was wrong. They used to have this phrase, only good Indian is a dead Indian. Excuse me for a phrase. You know what I'm saying? They said Indian. It was in, And he was like, that's wrong. That's racist. That's a racism thing to do to people. Instead of killing them, what you do is they said, 
kill the Indian, save the man. So what they did was, we're like, we're not going to kill you. We're going to kidnap your children and bring them to an indoctrination school in Pennsylvania, in the middle of Pennsylvania. That's where Carlisle got built up as this place for that, where we're going to take away their culture completely and allow them to be Americans. So this is where we're starting with it. Uh, yeah, we're just gonna have to occasionally in this episode, just like stop and like make jokes or something, because it gets so heavy. It's so easy to get so upset about this stuff. Reading this book, it reminded me that we as Americans have perpetrated at least two genocides. And the first one was against the Native Americans. And the second one was against the black slaves that we brought here from Africa. And the Native American genocide, I suppose can be viewed in a slightly different light because while we did hunt them down and kill them with guns, most of them, the vast majority of them died of smallpox from the European invaders before we were a country. That doesn't excuse what we did, but nobody did that part of it on purpose. And history, I think, would have been different. One thing that people do to frame the Native American thing is they talk about it like it's war. And they're like, people do war and people do conquest. That's like, it's terrible, but it's a part of what we do. And it is different from, again, like we're saying, chattel slavery, where you're just keeping them around. Like they killed Native Americans and then said, get out of our faces, which was like the typical thing. And this was so unique, this form of chattel slavery, even the type of slavery that happened for war in other countries, a lot of folks don't understand, was a different vibe. They didn't just keep you for generations after that in the house to do stuff or outside in the field. The Romans used to take slaves and the Mesopotamians took slaves and it would be a term basically like, all right, your city got conquered. I'm in the army that conquered it. So you are by our laws, you're going to be our slave for like four years, or you're our slave indefinitely, but you can earn your way out. It wasn't once a slave, always a slave. Being a slave was a temporary state that was based entirely basically on your geography. And, you know, if you were in a conquered town, you became a slave, but you weren't necessarily a slave for life. And your children weren't by definition slaves. It wasn't like American race slavery. I want to make a quick point on that before we move on, because this is a little bit sideways of it. But like the big thing about that, because we talk about that a lot on Brunch of Budget and with Pockets Change when we work with young folks. The thing about that is it's a money thing. The type of racism that was built in America is dispassionate. It's really interesting because we have a lot of emotion around prejudice and racism and all these feelings here. You know, racism is one of the words in the museum because of that, because of the way that we beat it down and tried to change all of the meanings. But the thing about it is Bacon's Rebellion was about the Irish indentured servants and the African slaves getting together and fighting back. And the people at the top were scared. So they started sowing these seeds of division between folks just as a mathematic thing, they were like, yo, it's way easier for us to count the African slaves because they look different. The Irish don't look so different from us, so it's hard to keep control over them. Let's give them a little bit more privilege. Let's care a little bit less about them running away so that we can hold on to what's easier to hold on to. It was an easier business decision that writ large became something that is part of everyone's daily life. Explain what Bacon's Rebellion is. Bacon's Rebellion was way back in the day when African slaves and Irish indentured servants decided, you know what? We ain't having no more of this. We're going to get together, work together, and have a rebellion. And it didn't work, but it almost worked. 
out. It got a little too far. And slave masters across the country were all concerned about their ability to hold on to folks. So that's when they started creating these laws and these ideas where it's basically what led to the Irish cop stereotype. The Irish indentured servants were allowed to be overseers. They were given slightly more privileges. And they were told that you have to take care of these unruly African slaves. And it's because of them that you were in this predicament. And then on the African slave part, they're like, look at you, African slaves. It's not us that's whipping you. It's those Irish cats. So it's the beginnings of the stuff that we see today where we're fighting amongst each other while the people who are benefiting from it are getting all the stuff out of it. Because like, we can talk about all these problems with the police and all, but I remember they didn't shoot Dr. King until he started talking to the white police officers and CEOs about how much salary they were making. <laughs> wow. Yeah. To quote a great poet, they only went after King when he spoke out on Vietnam. <laughs> so to think about the days of slavery, and I mean, we got to get back to Nazism pretty soon, but I think it's important to talk about where the laws that the Nazis ended up drawing from came from. Slavery, as you said, was an economic situation as much as it was a humanitarian disaster, but it was perpetuated by an economic need. And it's not dissimilar to the fact that, you know, we are right now speaking to each other on computers that we know were assembled by underpaid and probably abused workers in Asia and maybe even children. And we know that. We know that somewhere in the back of our minds and very vaguely. And if those people were to be, you know, compensated fairly and given American wages, the world as we know it could not exist. This technology would not be affordable. The stuff that we find in Walmart wouldn't be in Walmart. And that was the argument for slavery, that we can't produce cotton, the engine of our economy, without this system, period. So if you want to keep being American and you want to keep having America, this is what we have to do. And we had to fight a war to get over that. And so there is a part of me that while I look back on the horrors of slavery, reading this book and just thinking about it generally, of course, it feels like our ancestors are backwards and we're doing something unspeakably and unambiguously morally wrong. But to look at them with a little bit more compassion, we are not doing a dissimilar thing. Like we are not living in a dissimilar world. It's just distributed differently. It's in a different place. And the terms are different. It's not as horrifying, but we are still allowing people to be oppressed for our own economic gain. Which is tough, you know, it's really tough because like back then and today, we don't have a lot of avenues to really combat these things and be on good standing. A lot of times, you know, with the stuff that Pam and I teach with young people and with adults is about getting your personal finances together so you can be the revolutionary person that you want to be. You know, I spent a lot of time in my youth really having problems with money you know, also, but like hating money and hating the situations it put people in. You know, when we talk about this thing, I was thinking about mentioning it later, but the whole connection between African slavery and the Nazi Holocaust it's very personal to me. My father was a Russian Jew who was literally born on the boat between Russia and America, fleeing the Nazis. And my mother is a Black American woman, descendant of African enslaved people. This is also in the creation of me. And I know that today there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, it's a phrase that I love. And it's tough because I'm like, well, what can I do about these kinds of things? And the thing where we're at is to try to make sure we can make sure we're at a base 
where we're holding ourselves down and then make the changes that we can make the things that are in our purview, the things that are within our power. Cause it's really tough these days to be like, yo, all this bad stuff is going on. Well, I guess I should give up because the big thing about white supremacy. And I want to share when I talk about white supremacy, the idea of white supremacy, as you see in this book is it's a lie perpetuated upon a lot of people. And it's specifically perpetuated upon white people. Because white people, I want to let y'all know, when I talk about white supremacy, I mean these rich folks, because white supremacy doesn't care about you either. They've given you this lie, this lie that you're different, this lie that you're special and that you're better. Genetically, psychologically, all these things, we have no difference between us. We're humans. But this lie of white supremacy is that whiteness is a thing because they don't actually care. The richest people don't actually care about your whiteness. Back in the day, a lot of the insurance companies, New York Life Insurance, they were known as Nautilus, like the Bob James track, and they used to do insurance on African bodies, on the enslaved, where they would pay out the slave masters for the lives of these African bodies. And that's horrible, right? That's so horrible. Guess who else did it? Walmart, like you was talking about a minute ago, in the 2000s, and not to single out Walmart, because plenty of other companies did this, they did a thing called Dead Peasants Insurance, which sounds like a ancient, sad play that should go on a double bill with Les Mis, right? Dead Peasants Insurance is a thing where these companies would insure the bodies of their workers. So like, if you work for Walmart, you know, doing your double shift and you died, Walmart got paid out. And guess what? They did it to everybody. They didn't discriminate. They did to the white people. They did to black people, Asian people. One of the things why I say it's important for Americans to understand about this African slavery stuff is that they're just testing it on us. We're the blueprint and they're bringing it all to you eventually once they figure it out. And that's something that you see in this book is the Nazi folks, they went over there and they were like, wow, the Americans really got their stuff together with how they're subjugating people. We have people we want to subjugate. Let's take what they're doing and then let's make it go all the way across Europe. And they did a really good job spreading the American way. <laughs> There's so much to unpack there, but I'm just going to leave it. If you want to rewind it, listen to it again. But the thing I want to just say is that Walmart officially in documents calls the people who work for it peasants. That's fucked up. Um, okay. <laughs> Let's just leave that there. So this book, Hitler's American Model, I'll show it again because we definitely got a little bit away from the subject matter here. James Q. Whitman. I, I hate the fact that I own a book with a swastika on it, frankly, in my house, but it is what it is. So it's largely about, I think people know intellectually that the Nuremberg rally was a thing and was sort of the beginning of Hitler's power. But what I didn't know was that it was also a conference. And this book is kind of about like one of the breakouts sessions in the conference. It was where the Nazis were formalizing their doctrine. And so some of these lawyers in this meeting went on to do horrific things and, you know, will live on in infamy. I don't think it's even worth naming them. They did terrible, terrible things. They were all in Steven Spielberg's movie. They had done a survey of American laws state by state, and they were particularly interested in the miscegenation laws. Am I saying that right? Yes. Which I would like to high five you dialect because we're both practicing miscegenation. And products of? I'm a second generation miscegenist. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. You know, that's also one of the words in the museum, miscegenation. And we made a song about that called White Genocide, which deals a lot about the Nazi stuff. It's basically a parody song 
that's about a true story. It's about my parents having sex because what they said was whenever you make a child who is of mixed race, you are committing white genocide by not making more white people. So I made like a jokey song about how every time my parents would do it, white people would explode into clouds of dust. But that's such a Nazi idea that one, that there is this white, pure race to be protected, the idea of being protected. Funny enough, people were saying about the royal family recently that that's like the original idea of racism, really, of having a pure race, having just this one ruling class of people. And that's where everything else spreads from. Yeah, miscegenation, I don't know if we defined it, but it just means marriage between races, something that nobody in America really thinks about. Ooh, it started out as trolling. So the way the word first came into existence was a trolling pamphlet that was made by these guys. This is another thing I did in the museum, but it was a trolling pamphlet that they were trying to do to blame Lincoln and Lincoln's party, the Republicans, for being like a little bit too pro-Black. In their idea, they were going super far, like, look at interracial marriage. Look, Lincoln's promoting that. That's so wild. And they did such a good job that P.T. Barnum himself was like, this is going to become part of the American lexicon, even though it's a lie. And I can see it happening because, you know, P.T. Barnum has that kind of pulse on the country. Like how Obama supported MS-13 by allowing them all to move to America. <laughs> yeah, it's the same type of stuff. Yeah, that's the funny thing about it. the playbook don't really change. This is something I've talked to. I have a good friend who maybe he'll be on the podcast later, but he's Israeli and really studies the history of the Holocaust. And one of the things that he and I have talked about that I found in this book that was so interesting was the Nazis were, especially in this conference, really obsessed with defining what a Jew is. Because it is actually a big leap to make Jewishness into a race because Jewishness is a religion. They needed to define it as a race so that they could impose their racist policies on them. And they looked to our model of how we define mongrelization, our mongrelization laws. I don't even want to say the word, but that's what that it's called. That word is so terrible. Miscegenation is bad enough, but like, really? Mongrel? Miscegenation sounds clinical, but yeah, mongrelization is the study of the racial makeup of a particular person and how that affects them legally. And this was something that these Nazis were obsessed with, but they learned it from watching you, dad. We were the ones who were the forerunners of this. And what the Nazis ultimately discovered was that our policies on deciding who was and who wasn't in a non-protected race were just too loose for them. They described ours as this sort of, you know it when you see it. And to their German sensibilities, that was not good enough. And they thought that our standards were too loose. So it was easier to prove to a Nazi that you weren't Jewish than it was to prove to a Southern Democrat at the time that you weren't black. Which is funny because it displays weird prejudices on both sides, because with the American thing, they're like, we don't even want a hint. Not a drop. Yeah, not a drop. And like, hey, you know, with the idea of epigenetics being kind of a real thing that like from our ancestors, we retain some sort of memory in our genetics. I guess they're like, we don't want you to like secretly be harboring all of this Africanness in these appearing white people and then overthrow. But with the Nazis, their thing was, they felt that the Americans were a little bit too into our feelings about Africans. They wanted to be clinical. One of the things about racism, it's so funny because it's like ironic because xenophobia in general has connections to having a poor immune system and 
areas where they have poor immune systems often have a lot of xenophobia, as you can probably anecdotally think about like poorer and crappier towns and like, you know, remembering how they run foreigners or people from outside of town out of it. But the thing is, people think of it as a health thing. You often see this in the prejudice against fat people. They're like, oh, it's about health. It's about healthiness. The word normal, man, I'm just like pulling stuff out of the museum. The word normal comes from math, right? It's about a right angle. That's originally what it means, but like it's a perfect angle. And then it started getting used for health and people used it to describe perfectly functioning organs. So normal is something perfectly healthy. So when you start describing what is normal and your idea of normal being not this race, then you're saying things about that race are unhealthy. And if things about that race are unhealthy, well, we got to get rid of it so that we can all be healthy. That's an age old technique of trying to, you know, stop a certain race from going into a certain area with a sanitary cordon as deplorable in ancient Mesopotamia and ancient Rome as it is today. I have a question which hopefully will be a little bit happier, which is, have we made progress? And can we celebrate some of the progress that we've made since the 1930s? Because I think every American knows, for the most part, that the race laws in the 1930s in America were fucked up. And, you know, it didn't just end with slavery. We didn't fight the Civil War. And then all of a sudden, black people were free to just go do whatever they wanted. They were free to not be slaves, but that was about it. And the laws persisted for about 100 years after the Civil War was won. But since that time, since the 1930s, have we made progress? And can we celebrate some of the progress that we've made? Yeah, I think we can say that we've made progress and I think we can celebrate progress. People like to say, oh, I don't have cookies for y'all for doing the bare minimum. I have cookies for the bare minimum. Please here, take some cookies. The Black History Month thing is a pain for a lot of folks and I get it. And I've had problems and been like, I don't want to participate in Black History Month. But a lot of times that's the only way we hear about the Black history of how things go. I think to start off, and just to be real, one place we haven't made enough progress is the understanding of our history. And I think that we still pat ourselves a little bit too much on the back about that. The reason I say that is because it's a stark difference between our lack of understanding of our history and our decisions, our very rational decisions to attempt to empathize with people today. I think that's the thing that we can really celebrate is that people today make the attempt to empathize with people who are are different from them. I saw this one movie where they were like, yeah, that's what the kids are into now. They're into accepting people and being down with each other. And that's something that can be cool. So that jar opening, as I think, is a huge thing. And I think it has so much to do with the internet, our ability to talk to each other. Before, we didn't really talk to each other. There was a stat I heard recently that 75% of white people have zero friends who are not white. And a lot of that is region, right? Your region, your economic status, there just like aren't people around. And you would have these weird issues with white folks where like their only understanding of foreign people, people of color are the things they saw on TV, which are rife with stereotypes. Nowadays, you have the uncomfortable questions in our faces. And we may beef about it, right? It may be like, wait, you said what you look at on Twitter and people are like, I heard that Asian people do this. Is that true? And people are like, what are you crazy? How do you believe that? You're so wrong for thinking all that. And yeah, it seems harsh in the moment because folks are yelling. But I think that even a yelling emotional argument can be a productive thing overall. I think this is good stuff that we're barking at each other about these things, that we're yelling and saying, hey, this is me and I matter, that our art in particular is allowing these things to come out because it's always art that does it first. Remember, 
Hitler got punched in the face by Captain America before Americans had any policy for combating the Nazis. So like we've been allowing our people, our arts and culture to be able to do stuff about that. And I think that that's been a beautiful thing. Mind you, that's not new. That's been bubbling for years. It's just we're doing a better job now of giving credit and giving credence to the people who are making those changes. Yeah, I mean, I think racism is not mainstream anymore. People who would use the N-word in private know that they can't do it in public, at least. I'm using that kind of as a metaphor that like people who maybe harbor racist ideologies know that it's not acceptable in society. You ever see 48 Hours? Eddie Murphy, Nick Nolte? Yeah, yeah. I saw it for the first time when I was like 10 or 11. You know, it'd been out for a few years. All the parents knew it. And it's this story of a cop and a criminal working together. And the criminal is Eddie Murphy. And Nick Nolte is the hero. He's the one good cop, Bruce Willis diehard type of dude. And he calls him the N-word like 5 million times. And he's the hero. And it was the That's 80s. like in 1986, right? Yeah. When you talk about that, that is something that is a significant change in growth in folks. So they're like, oh, this is hurtful. Now everybody doesn't understand why and there's weird stuff around it and we're still having this discourse and like, what about rap songs? Well, if you said it, I said it and all that. But like you're saying, at least they're like, oh, there's something wrong about that. Things are hurtful. Just acknowledging that folks have to understand that's a huge step. That's beautiful. Be doing that. Let's talk about this. Let's have problems with it. I mean, I don't think that the election of Barack Obama ended racism, but- it was pretty cool. So this is actually, I'm going to turn this into something depressing, even though I wanted to say something inspiring. But one of the other episodes I'm doing is about A Promised Land. And so I read it right when it came out. And as I was reading it, the 45th president was still president. And I'm reading this book that Obama wrote. And he wrote it. He's a writer. It wasn't ghostwritten. He wrote this book. And it's so insightful. And whether you agree with him or not, whether you agree with anything in the book or not, He's an excellent storyteller and he's a great writer and he's just good at putting you in the moment and letting you know what he was thinking. And it's just so well written. And I remember thinking as I'm reading it, like the standard for a black man to be president is that he has to be this smart, <laughs> which is like Barack Obama is like top 30 people in the world, probably smart. Like he is just insightful and coherent and just brilliant. He's brilliant in every kind of measurable way. And then I'm looking at the person who was president at the time and thinking, this guy has just kind of failed into his position by virtue of where he was born and has never had a thought as nuanced as these thoughts. And whatever you think about him, he's not a nuanced person, right? And so what stood out to me is that like, yes, Barack Obama was president for twice as long as the person who succeeded him. But in order for a black man to be taken seriously, he has to be so far beyond exceptional. And so far beyond radical, because while he believed in a lot of stuff that would help black people, like you would see him literally bite his tongue and his lip before he went to certain places, because, you know, you also have to be perfectly in the box. And to again, here, I got your back. Let's pull it back to something we can celebrate. Just like a little over 10 years before that, Colin Powell was a war hero light-skinned dude, Republican, was, you know, big deal in the military, in the media. And he was thinking about running for president because he was so popular and he got so many death threats. The war hero that he was like, nah, I'm a chill. So for, you know, just 10-ish years later to be able to elect the cat, it is progress. It is something that you can see with folks where on a real simple, basic level, being less afraid of the dark. You know, language has so much to do with the way that we feel about things. And 
You ever wonder if the black white paradigm would be different if black people were referred to as brown people and white people were referred to as pink people? <laughs> you know, because there's this conjured <laughs> image of this, like people are afraid of the dark, right? We're all afraid of the dark. And when you multiply the fear of the dark with the stereotype of the African, then we come up with this boogeyman. And that's the thing that's so inescapable. And I think that we've begun to let go of this very imaginary boogeyman. I think a lot of the stereotypes remain and those are much harder to get rid of. But being able to let go of that first part is a huge step. Yeah, and it's, I mean, my in-laws are from Michigan and the matriarchs of the family were born in the 1940s and 50s. And they're racists, but they know that it's not okay. If that makes sense, like they've evolved to the point where they know that the beliefs that they can't unlearn are no longer relevant and weren't relevant at the time, but they still harbor these prejudices. And part of me is infuriated when I'm around it. And part of me is like, you know what? I appreciate that this is the best you can do and that you're trying really hard. It's a really difficult line to walk. And that brings me to like the big question I had about this book, because all of the things in this book, the Nazis and the American laws, the extremely explicitly racist American laws that the Nazis were looking into at this time, this happened 90 years ago. And when we think about our ancestors, let's say the Romans who had some weird policies regarding race and slavery, we give them this distance you know, well, that was 3,000 years ago. So obviously they had different views on the world. They knew less. And then I think the same can be said about the Colombian expeditions is that, you know, these conquistadors from Spain, they didn't really know what they were doing. They were unquestionably doing something wrong, but they didn't know. They were backwards. They didn't have the information that we have. And I feel like we give our ancestors a pass or not a past, but we view it with this sort of dispassion that, well, this is history and it happened and we can't change it. And there's no one alive who can be held accountable for it. So let's just learn it as some facts. But I wonder if given the acceleration and the exponential acceleration of technology and the exponential acceleration of knowledge, if we should be extending that curtain of ignorance closer to us than it has in the past, because there isn't a huge difference between what somebody in 1800 knew and what somebody in 1700 knew. There is a big difference, but it's not as big as the difference between what someone born in 1950 knows and what someone born in 1980 knows. It's huge. And I wonder if we should be looking at these people. You know, there are some people who were born in the 1930s who are still alive. And I wonder if we should be viewing them with the same sort of dispassion that we view our ancient ancestors. <laughs> no, I hear you. I kind of like feel the opposite way where I'm like, all those old heads, people like, oh, they was a product of their time. Well, so was John Brown. If folks don't know, John Brown was a white man who was an abolitionist who gave his life fighting for black people to be free. So were the still unnamed white people who managed to use their white privilege to steal the papers that led to people knowing about COINTELPRO. There are folks who are badass in their time when it was more dangerous. And I think as much as we give love to revolutionaries now, we should give even more love to revolutionaries then. And all of those folks who are products of their time, well, y'all can get left behind. We're kind of saying the same thing. Oh, yeah, I know. But just from the different angle. I totally agree that the people who saw the injustice and fought against it at the time deserve more credit than the people who, like me, show up at a protest with a sign for 45 minutes. That was the extent of my participation in this summer's unrest. I showed up and was counted. But the equivalent of that 200 years ago was, you know, saying to my friend, you know, I, I don't think black people should be slaves. That would be the equivalent revolutionary act. What I did was hardly outside the box. I think 
that's beautiful too. People be like, oh, social justice warriors, you don't really, it's just a retweet. Do you know how hard organizing is? Organizing is mad hard. And I'm not even saying I'm an organizer like that. I've been on a few organizing committees and done a couple of things here and there. But like I am in the streets. I do work with the youth. I do create art. And when I'm like out there doing some stuff. And if I'm out here trying to make change or I'm holding a rally, if I'm getting people down and all you can do is send a retweet, that's very valuable to me. Acknowledge the fact that what we're doing is hard because, yo, one thing about these folks and why I shout a lot about trying to give love to the people who try to make change is that we always, we always, we always die before we see change happen. Because that's how change works. Change is long. So we don't often get to see the tangible benefits of these things. And many of us die feeling like, oh, what did I even do with my life when we spent our whole life dedicated to service to others? So I want to make sure that we take our time to highlight that stuff because it is dope and it is beautiful. Change will happen. We just might not be there to see it. When you talk about things being 80, 90 years old, my father was born about 80 years ago. He was about 40 when he had me. I'm about 40 now. So like, we're not even talking too far away from all of this stuff. It's just two generations. So that's my point is that two generations of 20th to 21st century is a lot more change than two generations from 18th to 19th century. That's just something that struck me while I was reading this that I was thinking, wow, this wasn't so far away, but the world was so incredibly different. I mean, the two great world pandemics, the one we're currently living through and then the one in 1918, the situation of the world in 1918 was about half the world were peasant farmers at that time. And half the world were modern in the sense that we would today recognize. I mean, if you landed in New York City in 1919, you probably more or less could find your way around. But if you landed in Kansas in 1919, that was a completely different Ooh. world. Mm. You know, you're not going to find a Walmart. It's funny how history rhymes on that tip. Because when you look at the like 1918 and how a lot of people aren't being unhealthy, it led to a lot of civil unrest, which led to a lot of the popularity of the things that the Nazi party were saying after Germany was having a terrible time, epidemic, all these things coming out of World War One. And there was this fear today, this is like more stuff you can celebrate about the rising fascism around the world with a lot of countries, with our country in particular and all this stuff going on. And like you say, because we have more access to information and more access to each other, we're able to mobilize and knock some of this stuff out. I think a lot of revolutionaries in the past, they didn't speak up because there was no anonymous forum that they could start out on or group that they could join. They were just like, if I say anything out of my mouth, then that's going to be it for me. So let me not do that. So it's been really great to allow us to do more things. But like the parallels are so ill. Like uh, when we talk about the Nuremberg, right? The Nuremberg Conference, there was this cat who they give a dedication to in the beginning. I think Brodsky is his name, this judge, Louis Brodsky. And he gave a favorable ruling to these American cats who pulled down a Nazi symbol on a ship that was docked. And the Nazi folks used that as their inspiration to make the Nazi flag the official flag. And it reminds me of people today who go, well, you pushed me to be more racist. You were insulting me. It reminds me of every time I've had an argument with some random person and they start coming out the side of their neck talking about you disrespecting me. You're disrespecting me. Respect is often used as a cudgel for folks. They'll just be like, I vaguely am saying you're breaking the bonds of respect. So now I'm going to come with an extremely disproportionate response. Like you made us Nazis. You see people say today, you made me Nazis. I think I saw that on Twitter literally today. So I'm talking about you didn't 
welcome me in. So you're pushing me to be a Nazis. The literal, actual Nazis said the same thing. Yeah, the incident you're talking about was a ship docked in New York Harbor, was vandalized, and the swastika was like the Trump flag of 1932. It was around, but it wasn't the official flag. And then they used this incident where a New York judge essentially just released these people from what was definitely a crime, but basically said, we don't care. And the Nazis used that as an excuse to make the swastika flag, the flag of the party into the flag of the country. Yeah, that's telling. And you're right. The people who say you pushed me to be racist as if these ne'er-do-well Brooklynites were the ones who pushed Hitler over the edge, that he was just going to be a moderate ruler until they took his flag down, right? That's the implication. Shout out to Bree Newsom, right? It's all about these hipster kids from Brooklyn ruining everybody's party, right? So now they have to bring the hammer down on heads. Can I ask you real quick? Sure. The book talks so much about miscegenation, mongrelization, race purity, the blood quantuminess of all of that, and the way that mixing race was so terrifying, the way that unifying people was so terrifying to the Nazis. How do you see that? As you talk about like being a second generation miscegenator, we should do like a comic book, the miscegenators, that's terrifying. (laughs) But how do you feel when you see people around talking about the ideas of race as static, pure things. Does that cause fear? Does that stress you out? No. This is an interesting question because dialect, one thing that we have in common is that we both quote unquote pass. For listeners who don't know us, we're both half Jewish and I'm half Puerto Rican and dialect is half black. So dialect is a black man and I'm a Latino. I have witnessed, and I'm sure that you've seen the same thing, as I've been on both sides of racism where I've been around white people who have said incredibly racist shit to my face, not thinking they were talking about me. And I've also definitely gotten the attaboy nudge through a metaphorical gate because they thought I was part of the team. I've been on both sides of that. And I don't want to call anybody out, but there are some people in my family or like, I guess, friends of the family that I have occasion to talk to from time to time who are legitimately racist people. And their views they don't stress me out. They're just idiots. Like I'm upset that they're able to vote, but it's not worth my time to talk to them. You know, I'm an amateur academic and a professional musician. And if someone comes up to me and starts spewing some nonsense about how music works, I'm not going to try to re-educate them. I'm just going to get out of the conversation as quickly as I can. And so, you know, if someone comes up to me and starts spewing racist nonsense with no information and having been fed only by Twitter memes and propaganda, then I don't think it's worth my time to argue with them. It's not my responsibility to educate these people if they don't want to be educated. So that's kind of how I feel about it. And yeah, it stresses me out that I can't just like say three things and turn them into smart people, but it's not my responsibility. And that leads me to a question I wanted to ask you, which is, should this stuff be taught in schools? (laughs) One, yes. A lot of this stuff, as an educator who's written curriculum for schools, and I think that when we leave out the juicy and interesting details of these things, then we allow folks to just fill in the gaps with whatever common sense they have. And the common sense they have is often lending grace towards the oppressors, because the oppressors are oftentimes the winners. One thing I want to give you grace on is that passing, to be a little etymological about it, the term passing, meaning passing for white, is an act term rather than a passive term. You and I do not pass unless 
I don't know something about you in terms of actively attempting to make sure that the fact that you have a resemblance and or an adjacency to whiteness benefits you, that that's an active thing that people work for. What's funny about the term in recent times is that from the history of Nazism, people have been allowed to create these little subdivisions amongst us. As a kid growing up, being a mixed race, light-skinned Black dude just meant I was a different type of Black person. And you were considered just a different type of Latino back in the day. And now they realize with the stratification that we have and the communication of social media, if they can get us to identify as one particular thing, then they can take away a lot of the unity that folks have. So it's been perpetuated, propagated, propagandized around social media, the idea that you are inherently passing if you have white adjacency. And while you have inherent privilege with white adjacency, that's not the same as inherently passing. I completely lost your question. Does that mean your question again? I think this is important to address, but yes, thank you for the grace on that. And that is, of course, not what I meant. Like, I don't go out of my way to try to be less Puerto Rican. The thing to me that I find hilarious is what is a Latino look like. I end up with a lot of sort of mixed Latino friends. And this is one of the conversations we have. You know, one of my friends is a composer and he says that, you know, he's the wrong kind of Mexican because he's Mexican and he's a classical composer, but he is light skinned and he's Jewish. <laughs> so he's from Mexico and he speaks Spanish, but a movie studio doesn't see him and think diversity because he doesn't look like diversity to them. And that's what that means to them. And I guess for me, when I say I pass, what I meant is that like, you summed it up is that I get treated as if I were a white person sometimes. And if it's to my benefit, I'm not going to correct someone and say, oh, no, actually, you should unreasonably hate me. Or like, yes, you should put some more hurdles in front of me because I'm actually of this ethnicity. But I think in my younger life, I mean, I grew up in Westchester County, New York, where some people were overtly racist in the 1980s and some people were extremely progressive as they are today. And I'm sure it hasn't changed that much. But there were times where I knew that announcing my Puerto Ricanness was going to make something more difficult for me. So I just didn't. I did the opposite, fam. I always announced my ethnicity because I didn't want to get into trouble because I had six uncles who boxed professionally. I was going to wild out. When I ended up getting kicked out of the Boy Scouts, I swear I was being polite to this kid and I was telling him, please stop saying the N-word because I'm half black and my family from this and all this stuff. And yo, I remember when I dated a white girl in high school. She was great and her parents loved me until they were walking around together and they passed by my parents' store. And my mom hears the mother of my girlfriend say, you didn't tell me they were black. By the way, this is on a Caribbean island. This is in St. Croix in the VI where I was like, why did you move to a Caribbean island and expect, who did you think your daughter was gonna date? There's not that many white dudes around. I'm like your best case scenario, at least I'm like, okay, whatever. But you know, like for me, it was, there was gonna be something worse down the line if I didn't speak myself about this. And when it comes to like acting, you know, I came to the States to act too. And I actually kind of got out of it because I was tired of, at first people saying, yeah, we don't understand this beige thing. Oh, you're black, but you don't look black enough. And then, People have mentioned that we're moving towards a Brazil model where like everyone is considered kind of mixed and we give you special props based on your light skinness. I don't know if you've noticed the past eight-ish years of beige being really in on TV where people are loving the like technically you're this, but you know, so we can check off a lot of boxes. Ambiguously pan-ethnic, yeah. Yeah, well, that was me, right? I started getting called in for lots of stuff and they were like, yeah, so we can have no brown faces, but we can say we got a black guy. and. I kind of got out of the game because I was like, I don't want to be that. And I don't want to make it a big thing like I'm capernick or anything or I'm making a stand. 
we talk about this a lot on our podcast about money is you don't have to make everything a giant stand. You could also just say that ain't going to be me because the machine will run, right? They will still cast another beige person to do that thing and obfuscate stuff and tell the story that's not true. And you can benefit and try to move your way up in it. But I'm of the mindset that if you fake it till you make it, then even after you've made it, you're fake. So what you going to change? So with me and the way I go, I can say certain stuff. If I can't see a way for me to do stuff about it, I'm going to be out. And that's fine because I can find my avenues where I can jam with folks and we can make sense. And a lot of it comes from art and the art isn't always going to have everybody loving it. I saw a great comic book writer who was talking about how today's comic book movies are a perpetuation of white supremacy. And to a degree, sure, I hear that. But when we talk about this book in particular, one point that's really interesting that if we could make a creative thing about it, like you want to like work on a script based on this book, I would take the trip that they took to America. They took trips to America to learn about this stuff. And the thing that was the ill one is that the most ways that they got this information was sending exchange students, maybe they weren't actually students, but quote unquote exchange students to colleges so that they could learn about this, right? And I don't know if you're familiar with comic books, Loe, I am, but I know the trope of the European genius scientist who is in an American dorm room, but has some secret evil plans and eventually turns into a supervillain. That's Dr. Freaking Doom. I know they made up the country. It's like Latverdia instead of Germany or whatever other country, but that's a trope that comes from Jewish writers who are talking about their experience and slipping stuff in. And this is the thing I say about us living or not living to see change. One of the reasons why I love seeing Stan and all those movies is that this old Jewish guy got to write about stereotypes 60 years ago. And yeah, in his time, everybody was like, that's dumb kitty stuff. But he said enough real stuff in that dumb kitty stuff that 60 years later, it's the biggest money-making thing. And what you said about it not being cool to be an asshole anymore, that's through our art. We've allowed a lot of BS to happen through art. And a lot of artists have been able to continue perpetuating a lot of stereotypes. But you look at these beautiful moments. He's been in movies, Dr. Doom, Fantastic Four. I just heard Marvel is going to make more Fantastic Four movies and they're making billions and billions. So you know the next version of Dr. Doom is going to be a big star. And that comes from these Jewish guys alerting us, warning us about the ways that people who hate us will try to kill us. That's beautiful. That's worth celebrating. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that is a great place to end the discussion about Hitler's American model. We talked really more about racism in the United States, but this book really is about racism in the United States. I think anytime you use Nazis, it gets people's attention. And to show the similarity that our laws and the Nazi officially racist laws have and how they're members of the same family is really a powerful message and a powerful warning and a powerful call to action to make sure that we're not doing that today. Please, A, plug anything you want, and B, the final question is to recommend a book by a living author and a book by a deceased author. So I have a couple of things that I wanted to share on the books by living and deceased authors. 
if you are feeling what's going on here in terms of Hitler's American model, you've read it and you're like, I would like to know more. There are other books that talk about this. There's The War Against the Weak by Edwin Black that talks a little bit more about the eugenics movement. If you want to have a little bit more of an understanding of the parallels, there's Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. There's even for your young folks, there's a book called Martin and Anne that are about Anne Frank and Dr. King and the parallels. And it's a picture book for kids that talks about those things. If you want to find something about what money has done to us, Land of the Fee by the homie Devin Fergus talks about how the little fees that that companies have put into the way that we spend our money have made it so that the middle class can't move up any further. So those are a bunch of heavy ones. If you want beautiful stuff by a dead author, I biggest Octavia Butler fan. And I love Parable of the Sower. It's a little scary because it's a little pandemic-y, but it also gives us that rose in the concrete for us to feel like we can make it. Dialect, thank you. I'm just going to shout out what you guys do on Brunch and Budget. Dialect and his wife, Pam, are really just trying to guide people into financial freedom. And they have a lot of good advice. Dialect, as you can tell, is a really smart dude. And his wife, Pam, is, in addition to being very smart, also very financially literate and accredited and so on and so forth. They have some really good common sense ideas of how you can improve your life. And it's not a guru situation. They're just trying to give you the information so you can be better. Highly recommend Brunch and Budget. I've taken some advice from you guys. With that, thank you, Mr. Dialect. We will talk again soon. I think we'll probably do another episode. Let's pick something that is less depressing. Yeah, yeah, something lighter and not controversial, like Dr. Seuss, maybe. Next time, what we should do is the Muppets version of Cube. You know that horror movie Cube? Do you know that Jim Henson made it first with Muppets in the 70s? So let's do that. Wait, what? Yep. Yeah.